Well, let's get a Bible, God's Word, and let's open it up to the Gospel of John. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be today, verse, beginning in verse 20. I have a leadership question for you as you turn there. Maybe you've wondered this. Why does someone follow someone else? Why do we follow a certain person and not others? Well, this has not been a question that I've asked. This has been a question that a lot of people ask. And when polling agencies get involved, you know it's a question a lot of people are asking. So a Gallup poll a few years ago came to the conclusion after asking a bunch of questions that there are four what they called basic needs of followers that followers want in a leader in order to follow them. And they gave these. They said first, they wanted, people wanted to be able to trust a leader and build trust with him or her. Second, they wanted leaders who had compassion, that is, who cared about them as people. So trust, compassion. Thirdly, they wanted someone stable. Someone who could provide them a sense of steady consistency in the team or the workplace so that it's not chaos. And fourth, they wanted someone who could give them hope. Who could set forth a vision and who could say with confidence that there is a good future for the team or the organization. And to sum all those four up, trust, compassion, stability, and hope, people follow leaders because they want what the leader wants. If the leader has those things and wants to give them to his followers, his followers should want that. His or her followers should want that. And many of us today profess faith in a leader, right? We profess faith in someone who said, follow me to his first disciples and I will make you fishers of men. And what does the text say? They immediately left their nets and followed him. And we in this room, many of us, say that we are disciples of his, followers of his, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Do we want what he wants? Do we know what he wants so that we can know that we want it? We are coming in John chapter 17 to the end of Jesus' last recorded prayer before he's crucified. And he's praying to his heavenly father and he's asking his father for some things that he wants, and as I mentioned to the kids, for you and me. And not this a lot of passages that we study in the Bible are by extension, like we can learn from the lessons of the disciples who were there. But Jesus actually prays in this part of the prayer for you and me. So I want you to pay attention to that. He has you and me in mind as he prays this prayer. So as we get ready, as we get ready to do this, let's stand in honor of God's word and let's read this prayer. Let's hear Jesus pray for us. 
and see what he wants. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You may have a seat. Jesus finishes his prayer, amazing prayer, to his father with powerful desire. And as we hear it today, as we hear Jesus' desires, we should want what Jesus wants. Do you want what Jesus wants? Hopefully you heard some of the things he wants here, but let's ask the question, what does Jesus want? Let's unpack this. What does Jesus want? Well, first we look at Jesus wants his church to be unified. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, through their word, that they may all be one. See, the people of God who believe in Jesus are not limited to 11 Jewish disciples disciple guys and a couple of Jewish women who followed him around in the early first century. Jesus' church includes every generation right into ours of those who believe in Christ through the testimony and the teaching of the Holy Spirit inspired apostles. And it's recorded here and we read it. And he wants all of those generations and those within those generations among each other to be unified. Now, as you know, there's a lot of calls these days in the world for unity, right? And sometimes you wonder, is it the opposite of is it achieving the opposite effect? Because it seems the more there is calls for unity, the more division divisiveness there are. Unity in this world seems like a pipe dream. What's the difference? What's the unity that Jesus wants for his church? Well, first, and perhaps most importantly, this is a unity that reflects the Trinity. Look with me at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Do you want to know how to build life-changing, life-giving community? Look a lot and look for a long time, the rest of your life, at the triune God of the Bible. Bible. 
We worship a God who is in himself the most perfect, the most beautiful, the most harmonious community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence, three persons. Our entire existence and our interaction with all the creation around us is to have the triune God at the center. Oneness, as Jesus describes it, is to be like the Father being in Jesus and Jesus in the Father and the Holy Spirit, which he sends to be in us. It is a unity of relationship, a unity of mind, a unity of will, a unity of mission. What Jesus prays for here is that we who believe him would be connected to that kind of Trinitarian unity and reflect that unity. It does not mean uniformity. A lot of people get that wrong. Like, oh, well, once we become Christians, we all just become mindless automatons doing exactly the same thing. No. God the Father is still distinct from God the Son, who is still distinct from God the Father, who is still distinct from the Holy Spirit. But yet they're all one. And in fact, God calls the, his people, the diversity of his people, not sinful diversity and not diversity of sin, keep that in mind, but the diversity of his people is to display the nature and character and, of, and goodness of God who is Trinity. We went to the fair this weekend, and maybe you guys had a chance to go too. Saw some of you guys' artwork and 4-H contributions. Um, there is a picture, a mural, and I, hopefully the picture will come up. Yeah, there's a mural there. That's my daughter coloring in the 4-H-Hs. Um, for kids to color. And my wife made the comment, like, this is actually kind of an interesting picture of unity. That there's all sorts of shapes put together to make a picture. And then within that, we get to, as one pastor friend of mine says, get to paint with the colors God gives us. And together, it makes a picture of reality. Now, now this picture is the fair. And for the fair, it's for the fun of the fair, right? For the church, what's the picture that we're painting? It's God himself. So it's a unity that reflects the Trinity. Secondly, and you can go back to the point slide, it's a unity that the world can believe and know. Because why does he say that we would become one? It says, that they may all be one. This is verse 21 again. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be, they, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. And then look down at verse 23. It says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. A commentator I read this past week asked the question, why don't we have photographs of Jesus? It's kind of related to the mural in, in a way. Why don't we have photographs of Jesus? Because he sent his body here. The church is here. Yes, Jesus is a physical human being, but who is represented on earth by his church. 
full of the Holy Spirit. And why are we here? Because the world is utterly broken and divided. And Jesus came to graciously rescue broken sinners from it and make them whole. See, our unity as a church in how we love one another as Christ commanded in John chapter 13, how we support and encourage, even how we correct, rebuke, live with one another, how we proclaim the hope of salvation to the lost, all of those things are being watched by a world that believes that what Christ prayed for here is impossible. But Jesus doesn't pray impossible prayers. With God, all things are possible. So when Christ's prayer is answered, and it is, people are given the opportunity to believe that God the Father really did send Jesus Christ to save. Do you want that, church? Do you want what he wants? I have been greatly encouraged by this church in that this church has displayed a unity by about 90% of the the people who call this church home investing time, energy, and funds in getting our new facility ready. If you haven't been over there, check it out. It is awesome, the the amazing work that is being done over there. And it is showing just a little picture of who Jesus is like when his church is together, is unified. But unity is more than just the ways this church has gotten together for a building and more than, the, more than just how this church has weathered ups and downs over its past 30-year history. Thirdly, it's a unity that comes from and grows in glory. Because he says, Jesus prays in verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Well, what does it mean when Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them? What does it mean? It means that Jesus has made known to us who he really is, God in the flesh. He has revealed a splendor that this is not just a man. He is a man, fully man, but he's not just a man. He is fully God as well. God Almighty in the flesh, King of kings, who had every right, every right to leave us in our condemnation because of our real rebellion against him. It's called sin but who instead revealed his glory as the God who drew near, who shows himself mighty to save, who sacrificed himself so that we would not have to pay for our own sins with our own death, but would be set free from the world, the flesh, and the devil to eternal life. Unity in his church comes from us seeing and beholding that. The gospel. And we are marked now by Jesus and his finished work. 
And so it comes from glory, and then it grows in glory. Because he says, that they may become perfectly one. And this is the work of Jesus building up and sanctifying his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be so transformed by his glory, church, that when we are with one another in Christ, we are one with God himself in Christ as well. Jesus wants us to participate in the divine relationship that he has and all the blessings and benefits that he gives from it. Jesus wants his church to be unified. So may God grant us to grow in becoming perfectly one. And one day we'll be holy and completely one. We should want what Jesus wants. He wants unity now, and that perfect unity will come because, secondly, Jesus wants his church to be with him. Father, verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, maybe this doesn't need to be asked in your life. Maybe you're already looking forward to this, but let's ask the question, why should we look forward to this prayer, to what Jesus prayed, that we would be with Jesus, see his glory that God has given him because he loved him? There's a few reasons we should look forward to this. First, we were made to be with God. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with the first man and the first woman. Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day. If you've been outside in the early mornings or the late evening, later evenings these, these past few days, those are nice. Nice after a hot week. And think about that in unhindered communion with God. That perfect rest, that perfect peace, that perfect shalom. Things, meant, things are as they are meant to be in the garden there. We were made to be with God, but sin shattered that perfect and peaceful and good thing. You see, sin, above all the, the horrible things that we see its fallout do in our lives and in the lives of others, most above all that, it drives us from our creator. Because we cannot, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. We will flee from him because of our sin. They tied fig leaves around their, themselves to hide their nakedness. Because they were ashamed but it has always been in the plan of God that our merciful God and his, his gracious desire is to reverse that. And he reverses it as our Savior. And he becomes the way for us to come back to God. Or, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, not that he makes us acceptable, but that he makes himself acceptable to us that we now find him acceptable. 
we now find him not someone to run away from, but someone to run toward, to be with, because he drew near. Because what we do see here is Jesus, who is Emmanuel, meaning God with us, praying, I want them to be with me. Do you believe this, church? That Jesus wants you to be with him. Is this something you look forward to? We were made to be with God. And secondly, Jesus wants us to be with him because we were made to see the truest glory. Because why, why does he want us with him? He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Church, we are not merely a here and now people. God's book tells us that one day, one day we shall see our Lord and Savior, not through a mirror dim or a glass dimly, but face to face. And in this life, we're given only glimpses. And in Scripture, we're given only glimpses of this. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, who recorded this prayer, got a glimpse of that. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he says this. He says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now there's some figurative stuff going on there. But this is a majestic, amazing, almost unfathomable picture of our God. The identity of Jesus is not primarily a Galilean carpenter, although he was. But he is the divine son of God, exalted forever. And we were made to see this. This image should not inspire terror to drive us away from him, but awe to draw us toward him. Because thirdly, in Jesus wanting his church to see him, we were made to experience the greatest love. To see my glory that you have given me because, Jesus affirms from his father, that you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is glorious because the greatest being of all, the being who defines existence for all others, loves him and has loved him forever. And Jesus prays that we would see the magnificence and splendor that come in, comes from him being the object of God the Father's love. Why? Because Jesus wants us to be with him. That sun shining in full strength is not designed to fry us, but is, through faith in Christ, designed for our enjoyment, 
our assurance, and our comfort. So is what Jesus prays in this prayer a prayer and promise for you? Have you trusted Jesus, the Savior, to rescue you from your sins against him? If you have not, that image should terrify you. And he shows it in kindness. And as Romans 2 verse 4 says, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Have you trusted Jesus the Savior to rescue you to the most amazing sight and greatest experience of love that you and I were made to enjoy for all eternity? We should want what Jesus wants. Thirdly, Jesus wants his church to know him. Oh, righteous Father, he prays, verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. Now, as we look at this, this knowing is not just mere intellectual assent. Like, I've got facts about Jesus, and that's what they're going to stay, facts. No, this is transformative knowing. This is like, I know that bread is baked in the oven. Moves to, I baked bread in the oven, and it came out, and it smells amazing. And everybody should eat this. That's the kind of knowing. It's transformative. It's real. It is lived. John ties this kind of knowing with believing. This is what it means to believe, to know God. So what happens when we know Jesus? Well, first, we know who God really is. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to, the, I made known to them your name. See, a world opposed to God, which is what is meant here, the world will tell us all sorts of things about who God is that are false. That he's not really all-powerful and all-loving, and that he's... They also say that sin's not really a big deal to him. Or they would say, well, he's just a giant cosmic bully. That he's not three in one. That he didn't send his son, Jesus, to... to in the flesh, and that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But when we see Jesus, when we know him, the Father is finally made known to us, revealed as he is, righteous. Oh, righteous Father. That means he's wholly good, and everything that he does is right. Because he is the essence of right. So even in his displaying mercy to you and me, even though we didn't deserve a whiff of it, is righteous. Which is why we can now say we are justified by God. When we see Jesus, we see the God who doesn't want his creatures to remain in their sins. We see the God who wants to lavish such grace upon us that we, 
that we know that he intended to bless us and not curse us, but came and said, forgiven. And as he died, he said, live. And as he rose, saying, it is possible. And he's not just after our salvation, but he's after the restoration and renewal of all that has his name on it. We know who he really is. But let's be clear. It's not like we hear this once, believe it, and then it's one and done. You're all familiar with what makes us physically and genetically DNA. DNA has, right from the beginning, has all the instructions, all the building blocks to create a fully formed human being and adult. Why doesn't God just start there? Why doesn't God just start there with us? And why doesn't he start, that, start there with us in the new creation that we are when we are saved? Why not just make us fully, spiritual mature, fully spiritually mature? Because healthy things grow. Because secondly, we grow with his love in us. Jesus said and prayed, I made, known to them, I made known to them your name, verse 26, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. God is love, as 1 John chapter 4 says. So when he is revealed to us, we finally know what real love is. And get this, listen to what Jesus says, that that love with which you have loved me may be in them. God, Jesus has asked the Father to love us the same way that the Father loves the Son. with that amazing, glorifying, transforming love. That should knock our socks off every time we see it. Every time we hear about it. This is a transforming love that does not originate with ourselves. Jesus, and now in his church by his Holy Spirit, continues to tell us who God is so that we can grow in loving him. Did you know that perfect can grow in perfection? That's what heaven is. As C.S. Lewis put it in his Chronicles of Narnia series, each chapter was better than the one before. We're meant to grow with his love in us. And this is the kind of love that continues to tell us who God is so that we can grow in loving him with the love he gives us and loving others with the love he gives us. Anyone found it impossible to love the unlovely or the unlovable? Such were we all before Jesus Christ loved us. And now we get the privilege, being full of his Holy Spirit, to show that love to the unlovely.
We get a capacity to love that we didn't have before, and we grow in it. And thirdly, when we know Jesus, we show his identity among us. As I will continue to make known your name, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When we believe Jesus, he comes to dwell in us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not just, we need to fix up and put some polish on what's broken. No, you need to be born again. This has to be made new. You must be made a new creature through faith in Christ. And that's who we become. And when we become a new creature, guess what? We have a new identity. We are new creatures in who? Christ. This glorious, amazing, majestic, divine son of God. What does that mean for our time and generation? Well, it means at least this. It means that our self is no longer the most important thing about us. Our sexuality is no longer the most important thing about us. Our ethnicity, our nationality, our political affiliation, our school, our work, our earthly family, our stuff, even our sins are no longer the most important things about us. Christ is first and most, or he is last and none. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. There's no on the fence. If you are a new creature in Christ, the old has passed away, Scripture says. He is who defines you. While we remain in this world, we are continually tempted to make any number of created things into God-sized things. And so Jesus prays that he will continue to make the real God known in love to us, that our lives, our identity may be found and seen in him both as individuals and as the body of Christ. This is what he wants for his church, to know him. Do you want what he wants, church? Will you follow him who wants such good and better for you than anything the world has to offer? We should want what Jesus wants. And maybe you've picked it up already, but there is a catch. To truly want what Jesus wants, we have to lay our wants down at the altar for God to do with whatever he desires to do with them. Why does it have to be that way, God? Why can't I have Jesus and? Our wants, oftentimes, and our desire for our wants, get in the way of what Jesus wants. Because we do not worship Jesus, CEO leader of the Sunday hour and a half day job, and then once we clock out of this service, we're our own boss. This is Jesus who is God in the flesh, who is Lord over all of our life. 
every moment, right down to our thoughts and our feelings. That's who we lay it down to follow. But it's not like Jesus is calling us to a place where he hasn't gone before. Jesus, every single day of his life, as Philippians 2 said, emptied himself of the glory that was due him so that he could love you and me. Jesus himself is praying this as he gets ready to lay himself down in the ultimate sense to make his father's name known. To lay himself on God's altar so that he would be able to give us what he wants for us. The opportunity for unity the promise to be with him forever and the assurance to really know him as he is. And as we see this and know this, church, we should want what Jesus wants.